today's sermon passage will be in Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but... Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire." And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Thank you, Amy. Be seated. <clears throat> Good morning. Good morning. Oh, thank you. Uh, to get started, I want to Say happy anniversary to my wife who just handed me water. <laughs> 41 years tomorrow. Now that is a test case and perseverance on her part. <laughs> Great Christian virtue, right? Uh, I'm Stephen Carlson. I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer Church. Our pastor, Jamie Mosley, is out of town and he asked me to pinch it for him this week. And so we're actually picking up our study in the book of Matthew today. Uh, for those of you who have been around, you know that we are go going through the book of Matthew, but we took four weeks out in the month of May to, for our missions emphasis. And so now we're picking up where we left off in the book of Matthew. And, uh, you know, I wrestled with what to call this uh, sermon today, but I gave it the general title, Kingdom Realities. Uh, the kingdom is a very common and very important theme in the four Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we have seen the king and the kingdom numerous times already. And so as we get into this passage, we'll just need to think of the fact that uh, Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, are the backdrop of all that we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, so pick up with me in chapter 18, verse 1. Our first point is greatness in the kingdom, verses 1 to 5. Now, I have included verse 5 in this uh, section because I believe it actually should go with uh, the previous paragraph, and uh, verse 6 starts a new thought, and we'll see that in a moment. So notice uh, this first verse. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, that raises a few questions in my mind. Um, first of all, what aspect of the kingdom is in view here? 
As we've talked about the kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew, we have said that there are two aspects to the kingdom. One is the kingdom in a present reality, and the other is the future kingdom that we will experience when Jesus returns. That is the kingdom in its fullness. But right now, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the primary emphasis in the kingdom in the gospel of Matthew is on a present reality. In fact, if you go back to chapter 3, John the Baptist began his ministry by, by, by proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then in chapter 4, Jesus does exactly the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In chapter 5, the, the first beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean, then, kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is this invisible reality that all of us enjoy who have come to faith in Jesus. We know that there are spiritual truths that we are in a kingdom with Jesus as the king. And there's a world of unbelievers out there that not only do not know about it, they don't care about it. They don't see it. And if they're told about it, they deny it. And these are the ones that we are responsible to reach to bring them into the kingdom too. This is the purpose of the church. For us to proclaim Christ is king, Christ is the only way to salvation, the only way to enter this kingdom now and to be in the kingdom, the eternal kingdom in the future when he returns. And so you notice the way the question was asked. The disciples asked this question, who is greatest? Who is greatest? They're thinking of it right now. The king is here. And they're expecting that magnificent global kingdom to come in right now. And if we go back just to the end of chapter 17, I think we can see why they're thinking along these lines. And so that is another question. Why did they ask this question in the first place? Why was this on their mind, greatness in the kingdom? Well, let's go backward a little bit. In chapter 17, right at the very end, this is the last passage Jamie preached on in the Matthew series back in uh, last Sunday in April. And it was a question about who's going to pay the temple tax. And Jesus said... Peter, do rulers and kings, do they tax their own sons or do they tax their servants, their subjects? Peter says, well, they're subjects. And so the idea of a king and a kingdom was already in their minds. And I think it's really helpful for us to remember as we go through the Gospels that Jesus and his disciples were almost always on the move. You can see this a lot in that, um, that TV series, Chosen. They're traveling, they're walking along, they're going here and there. And they have these conversations while they're on the move. And Jesus has already brought up this idea of kings, and here their king is. What is going to be the nature of the kingdom? Who's going to be the great ones, the rulers, the potentates in this kingdom that Jesus is about to establish? Surely it's going to be us. And we just want to know what the pecking order is going to be. Earlier in chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus manifests his glory. He's transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah are there. But the disciples noticed that Jesus only took Peter, James, and John with him up there. Hey, why did they get to do that? And not the rest of us. 
and perhaps also still in their minds is this amazing passage in chapter 16, what Jesus said about Peter. Who do people say that I am? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Borjona, because the Father has revealed it unto you, not flesh and blood. Peter didn't figure this out on his own. And I will give you, Peter, singular, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you, Peter, singular, bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you, singular, Peter, bind loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus gives the keys to the kingdom only to Peter. And he doesn't extend the binding and loosing until the passage coming up for next week to the rest of the apostles. Now, he's not talking about a hierarchy, though. He's talking about authority to preach the gospel. What did Peter do? He's the one that unlocked the door and threw it wide open on the day of Pentecost when he preached the gospel and 3,000 people entered the kingdom. He was the first to do it. And then the authority of binding and loosing has to do with giving permission or denying permission. The gospel does this, and we who proclaim the gospel do this. And the apostles were the first to do it. Peter started it off. The rest of the apostles did it. We do it every time we proclaim the gospel. The gospel is a double-edged sword. If you believe the gospel, it brings you into the kingdom. You have permission to enter the kingdom. If you reject the gospel, it denies you entrance into the kingdom. But the apostles had not worked this all out yet, and they were still thinking along these hierarchical lines. Well, boy, there's Peter. He's got the keys, whatever that means. And they, these three went up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and we didn't. He got all these kings and authority on the earth. What's it going to look like, Jesus? And Jesus turns things upside down. Because what he says is not at all what they were hoping for. Look in verse 2. By the way, Roman number 1, greatness in the kingdom. He already put it there up, up there for me. <laughs> and verse 2, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said... Again, Jesus is, and the disciples are walking down some road, and there's a child over there playing in the yard. He says, come here. And then you can imagine him putting his hands on this little child's shoulders, and then he says this to the disciples. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is it about being childlike that Jesus is saying here? Because children are totally dependent on other people for what they need for protection. And that is exactly what faith is. Faith is being totally dependent on Jesus and what he has done for you. Works is the opposite of that. Works means I'm, I am depending on me. Salvation only comes to those, entrance into the kingdom only comes to those who renounce their own sufficiency, who in childlike faith depend completely on Jesus for salvation. 
And remember then, the child is just an enacted parable. He's talking about everyone. We all come to faith in Jesus this way. We depend totally on him. That's how you enter the kingdom. Elsewhere in John's gospel, John chapter 3, talking to Nicodemus, Jesus says, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Those of us who have been born again, those of us who have come to faith in Jesus, we can see these spiritual kingdom realities. We have accepted what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, and we are now part of his kingdom, and our job is to expand that kingdom to a world primarily in unbelief. And he says then in verse 4, so whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this is uh, something I think would be helpful to look at for a moment is the idea of humility. Uh, we have a, I can't think of a warped view of humility. Biblical humility does not mean to think of yourself as a bozo or something, to think lowly of yourself, to have a low self-esteem. That's not the idea at all. Jesus used this very word about himself in chapter 11, for I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Humility is that state of mind at heart where we are just not concerned about rank and power and recognition and authority. But that's not important to us. It's, a, it's pretty much the same thing as Jesus saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you'll be the servant of all. It's the idea of servanthood. And how do we serve one another? We meet each other's needs. See, we are a unique bunch of people in the world. Christians are vastly outnumbered. And we need each other. And this is going to be a theme in the rest of our passage as well. This is what humility is. And notice how he says this. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We all are. We're all equal. God cares just about, about you as any other Christian. God loves you just as much as he loved the Apostle Paul. Get this. God loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. Because God's love is infinite. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't love you just a little bit. He loves you infinitely, and because he does, he gave his infinitely powerful son to die for us so that we could be in his kingdom. Sounds like we're continuing our mission strategy, doesn't it? Great message passage here. Whoever, now look at verse 5. He, he wraps up this little paragraph with verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. I have to receive you in the same way Jesus did. This is very similar to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, 7. Therefore, accept one another as Christ accepted you for the glory of God. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom. Amen. We are all one. We are all together. 
We are all in Christ Jesus. He has redeemed all of us fully and completely. God doesn't play favorites. If you have two children, six children, ten children, do you play favorites? I hope not. God doesn't. He loves us all equally. He loves us all infinitely. And so to answer the question, who is the greatest? We all are because we're all children of God. We all belong to him and we're all significant people in his kingdom. And our job is to expand that kingdom and help each other grow together and walk with the king. And then Jesus makes a major transition in verse 6. This is uh, Roman numeral uh, number 2. It's Roman numeral 2 on my sheet here. <laughs> Enemies of the kingdom. Wow. I don't think I've ever felt the impact of this passage as much as I did this week as I was preparing for this morning. Notice in verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. I got a little bit of chill bumps just reading that. Who is Jesus referring to here? As I said a moment ago, we're a minority. This kingdom that we're a part of is very small. The vast majority of the people in this world either reject the idea of Christ's kingdom, don't care about it, don't know about it, don't want to know about it. Sin has blinded them. But Jesus still warns. Notice again. The transition from verse 5 to verse 6. We receive each other, but what does the world do? Reject us. And in fact, they are aggressive in keeping other people from believing this gospel nonsense. Our Savior doesn't like that. How do people outside the kingdom keep people from coming into the kingdom? By what they teach, by what they say about us by what they say about God, about Jesus. Every Christmas and every Easter, you can go to a bookstore and see these magazines, Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine. Who is Jesus? Did he really live? Did he really come back from the dead? Did he really say, oh, the gospel's accurate? And they 99.9% .9 of the time come to the wrong answer. Millions read those lies. And they are doing what Jesus says here. They're keeping people from coming into the kingdom. Big Bang Evolution. There's a world of scientists out there telling you not only that we evolved, but we really don't need a God because the universe exploded a long time ago and everything we see now is just a result of that. This may come as a shock to you, but that's really not what the Bible says about how our world got here and how we got here. That is stumbling block. This, this uh, causing to sin is actually a word that means a trap. You spring a trap and grab somebody. It's a 
translated stumbling block or a, a fence. And Jesus is here describing those who put these stumbling blocks of the way of people who may come to faith, but they're filled with these lies. And Jesus said, it's better if you just tie a great big rock around your neck and jump into the water and die. That's what a millstone is, a great big rock they use for grinding grain. You might have seen these on uh, movies about the ancient world. Why does he say it's better for them to go ahead and die? Uh, that, that's shocking statement. The reason is because every time these people do this, they are bringing greater condemnation upon themselves. And if they die now, it won't be, it will be less than the condemnation if they keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. Because the Bible teaches that there's going to be degrees of punishment in hell. And they're just piling one wrath of God after another on top. Jesus uses a similar phrase, it is better, or it would be better later on in Matthew's gospel to describe Judas. It would have been better had he not been born than to betray me. Why? Judas would be better off if it never existed than to betray Jesus and end up in hell. Those are the enemies outside the kingdom. But now Jesus turns, and here's one of the harshest realities of all, that people in the kingdom can become enemies of the kingdom too. Look in verse, um, oh, let's read verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Because we live in a fallen world, these types of issues are going to happen. This type of sinfulness, fallenness, going all the way back to Adam, rebellion against God, it's going to happen. But we as God's people should not emulate what the world is doing. Look at verses 8 and 9. And if you, your hand or your foot causes you to sin, there's that phrase again, call it a stumbling block, a trap to ensnare you. Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And he says the same thing about the eye. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus used the same imagery to talk about lust. And he said, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. If you are having trouble with pornography, gouging out your eye won't really help because you can still see. Right? You can gouge them both out and you can still think. So this is hyperbole. What Jesus is saying is to go to drastic lengths to get this stumbling block out of your way. Throw your computer in the river. Some people rather have the guys gouged out than lose their computer. <laughs> you see the point here? Now Jesus applies that as a whole to our entire lives. If there's anything 
causing you not to walk in the kingdom the way you should be or to be a stumbling block to somebody else, get rid of it. The Apostle Paul has some experience with this because in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I tell you, even weeping. And he's talking about the Christian community where he was ministering. The day are enemies of the cross of Christ. Because they have allowed themselves to be distracted by the things of the world and not to pursue kingdom realities, not to pursue the will of the king. What happens when Christians find themselves in these situations where there are people who are straying? We as Christian brothers and sisters, those of us who are in the kingdom as God's children, how are we supposed to respond when we see this happening? Well, that's what Jesus addresses next. This is in number three, unity in the kingdom. There are numerous passages in the Bible that talk about the importance of Christian unity, the unity of the body, the body of Christ, all of us equal citizen kingdoms. And we have a responsibility to one another. You know, I've been a Christian 50 years, 50 years last month. And it's the people who have loved me the most that are the ones that come and rebuke me when I need it. It's not easy to listen to. But that's the nature of the Christian community. That's the nature of the kingdom that our king uses us to go after the one that is strayed. And that's the context of this little parable that's coming up. Look in verse 10. See that you do not spies one of these little ones. Again, the little ones, is not, he's still not talking about the child. That's imagery for all of us who have come as a child, in childlike faith into the kingdom. So he's talking about the Christian people. He's talking about citizens of the kingdom. And the word despise is it's really not uh, an intense form of hate. Uh, the Greek is the idea of looking down on someone with, with contempt or just don't care. You're not important. Don't consider your brothers and sisters in the kingdom as unimportant. They're important to him. They must be important to us. So what happens when one of them strays? And here's the parable. Look in verse 11, excuse me, verse, the latter part of verse 10. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. These angels who are in the presence of God, God sends them down to serve us too. Now, we don't know how this works. There's an unseen reality out there, this invisible world where the angels dwell and their work on earth. We don't know what they're doing, but in some way they're serving us. And I think we need to understand this, not in the sense of a, uh, each one of us has our own little garlean angel or something. But in the terms of Hebrews 1.14, that they are ministering spirits for those who will inherit salvation. But the Bible simply does not tell us how they do it. But they're so important, God sends them directly from his presence down to us. And when one of them strays, this is what we as his children need to do. Look in verse 12. I think I need to 
uh, do a kind of a PS here. You'll notice that there is no verse 11. Um, your translation will probably go just directly from verse 10 to 12, and how verse 11 in a footnote, it will have it in the text in brackets. The reason is that there's a textual variant here that's uh, really out of place. It's borrowed from Luke 19.10, which says, For the Son of Man is coming to seek and to save that which was lost. It's the last statement in the story about Jesus and Zacchaeus. But it doesn't fit the context here, and it just got worked into the text later on in the Christian tradition of uh, the Greek manuscripts. And so I think they correctly eliminate from here, because Jesus isn't talking about seeking the lost. He's talking about going after the Christian who has strayed. And that's the point of the parable here. So he says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Now this parable occurs elsewhere. It's in Luke chapter 15, but it's in a completely different context. They're not parallel events. They didn't, not, not just two accounts of the same event. This one was first. And then a later time, Jesus scribes and the Pharisees are there. And he gives this same parable. And he says, there's rejoicing more over the one sheep that was lost and has been found than over the 99 who need no repentance. And he's talking about the Pharisees. He's talking about the 99 who don't think they need to repent because they're already in the kingdom. And so there, the 100 sheep are all lost. One of them goes off. And the shepherd goes and gets him and redeems him, while the 99 remain unredeemed. Here, the 100 are Christians, are believers, are citizens of the kingdom. One of them is strayed. And the shepherd goes and gets him, and the angels rejoice. Everyone rejoices. Just as they rejoice over the lost sheep that was saved, Rejoice over the one that has strayed and come back. You know, we don't, we don't celebrate, well, he's walked with Jesus today. He's walked with Jesus again today and today and again and again and again. But we do rejoice over a person being saved or a person who strayed and come back to the Lord. What does that look like? What does God do in bringing people back into the fold who have strayed, who are true Christians, but their lives don't show it anymore. They're in rebellion. They've gotten lackadaisical about their Christian life, about their walk with the Lord. He uses us. Now, God doesn't have to do it that way. He can do anything he wants to. Think about the person who's gotten real lax about church attendance and instead of coming to church, he's at the golf course. And in Star Trek terminology, God just beams him directly from the golf course right here in the front row, right there in front of Drake Row. He can do it that way, right? But he doesn't. He uses his children to go get his other children who have strayed. Because it's his will that his children look out for each other and, when necessary, rebuke each other. 
And this fits directly or leads directly into the passage that's coming up in the very next paragraph about church discipline. And Jamie will be talking about that next week. But this is how seriously God takes us as his people and our responsibility to serve each other even in harsh, difficult circumstances. If you've ever been involved in something like this, it is not fun. It is not comfortable. And yet we as the church have to do it for the good of the congregation and for the good of the individual that has strayed. You know, we've talked a lot about the king and the kingdom, what faith in Jesus means. And yet we have a pretty big crowd here. And I think it's safe to assume that not everybody in this room knows Jesus. Not everybody in this room has come to faith in Christ and is part of this kingdom. And so my challenge for those who don't know Jesus, let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day that you listen to the voice of the Spirit proclaiming the gospel to you and telling you that Jesus truly is the Son of God, the only Savior, and that you trust in him and enter this kingdom that we've been talking about. 